Hi, thanks for tuning into the podcast, Asking for a Friend. Here at Life Church, we know there are hard questions, both from people inside and outside the faith, that can easily go unanswered. These can be due to feelings like the fear of asking, or the fear of rejection, or maybe just not knowing who to ask. This podcast is made to engage with those of us who are searching for those answers. Today's episode, we have Heather Weber, and the question we're going to dive into is, what is the role of women in the church? Such a great episode. Take a listen. This is the first episode for Asking for a Friend. Thanks for joining us here. And uh, my name's Ben. I got Josh and Heather with us. And uh, Josh here is our worship pastor. He's been in ministry for 25 years, Mm -hmm. and he is going to also be leading some of these episodes here in the near future. So we're really excited about that. And we also got Heather here, a Life Church native. Mm-hmm. Uh, she attended the first Life Church service right. back in 2005. <laughs> wow. So cool. And uh, not only that, but she's been on staff with Life Church for eight years. And then she is now the founder and leader of City Church in Iowa City. She's also the team lead for the Network of Women Ministers and also the regional director of the North Central Region of the U.S. for the Network of Women Ministers. For the Assemblies of God, like not for all the women ministers in the sure. world. That's but so, yeah. That's really so yeah. impressive. Well. So we, yeah, we're so excited to have you on. Today, we are going to be covering uh, the question, what is the role of women in the church? So I want to just start off, Josh and Heather, uh, who's generally asking this question? And how has it been becoming more important, I guess, in the recent years? I, I think maybe I'm in these conversations too often to be able to have a good perspective on who's asking, because I feel like so many people are asking. Um, and it's oftentimes women who are asking more than guys, like in my experience. Mm-hmm. And it's usually because, of course, like there's some measure of like, I have gifts. They want to be heard. I want to yeah. serve. Yeah but I don't see women doing it. And I have this sense that like, I might be supposed to do something for God, but I don't know what that is because I don't have any templates. I, I haven't seen anyone do that who's a mm-hmm. woman. And I think that's becoming less so, but yeah, a lot of conversations with women and a lot of conversations with women who are currently like working on credentials, but who are also saying, but where is there gonna be a place for me mm-hmm. to serve in the body right now? Yeah. What, what have been some of the instances that, uh, that you guys have come across, I guess, with this question? For me, uh, it first came on my radar. Uh, it's when my sister, uh, her and her husband were attending a church, and they were starting to look. They had a daughter, and they're like, man, like, I really want my daughter to be able to do all the things that uh, she can do. Mm-hmm. And... Um, they started asking questions and trying to figure out um, what the stance was on women in leadership in case uh, their daughter uh, wanted to become a pastor or just to, um, if that option is was open, because mm-hmm. they were leaning, I mean, towards where it's like, yeah, like they, they would want that for her. That's so cool. And I don't think most parents think about that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And for me, like, I would be in the boat of like, it just wasn't on my radar, yeah. and I think part of that is because I'm a guy, and um, and it just 
I think the people I was around and stuff. So when that hit, that really sparked for me the the be like, oh, like what does the Bible say about this, and mm-hmm. and what does this look like? And so that was that was really a couple years ago, and uh, what started it for me, mm-hmm. that where it started to put it on my radar of like how. Uh, how much value this question does have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 2017 at, at my previous church, I was actually a pastor at, and um, I had a guest come up to me after church, uh, a woman, a, a young woman, and, and say, hey, we really love this church, and but we noticed that, you know, all your elders are, are men. Um, can you tell me why that is? And I didn't have an answer for her because I just, ne- I just never really thought about it. I just grew up. Well, I grew up in that church as a small child, and it's just the way it was the way it was. But then all of a sudden, it just sparked this passion inside of me to be like, man, there's something, I'm not sure how I'm, I'm, I'm not vibing with this. Mm-hmm. I want to know what, <laughs> I want to know what, like, God has to say about this. And so I just really dug in, um, dug into the topic. And I'm so glad that I, that I met that guest, because otherwise I might still kind of just be apathetic yeah. about it or just uh, uninformed yeah. and. Mm -hmm. you know so that's cool for me I was probably about 18 and I'd been raised in more complementarian churches Um, and in this church there was a couple that had moved from Chicago and they'd come from a different denomination where women were leading and I'm not going to name names or denominations right now because people put too much together but um, they they both had ministry gifts and they were functioning as leaders and it kind of like spurred a lot of question among our young adult community here in downtown Iowa City and a lot of the college students were asking like well what what is the role of women and what can women do and um, and it, it caused uh, there to be like a few events where the pastor's like meeting with the men and then with the women and here's our theology and this is what we think. But it was like separate groups, you know? (laughs) So my fiance and his roommate went to the guy one and they came home and they basically said, well, they think you can be in leadership, but like never a senior leader because, you know, women just can't bear the emotional burden of that. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't even that, There could have been like theological, like scriptural stuff that was presented as well. But at the end of the day, that's what they took away. And that's the message I took away. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so that kind of sent me on a a journey of being like, huh, you know, like interesting. And then I ended up attending a church that was actually started by this couple. And the wife actually did more of the full-time pastoring. So for about five years as a young adult, I had a female lead pastor and just became really attuned to what that was like and seeing her, you know, homeschool her kids and have pastoral meetings, you know, while her kids were, you know, doing homeschool and, and just like seeing how a woman can navigate all that and still be like living into her calling was really cool. That is. Yeah. Um, just a follow-up question of, so like when you're, when you're, your husband or mm-hmm. fiance, fiance at the time. At the time yeah. yeah. When he came back and was like, told you like the answer that the, the church did, mm-hmm. what was like kind of your attitude like when you heard that? I mean, I think I felt chagrined, you know, like, okay, all right, that's how it is, you know? And I, and I think I grew up with like 
a sense that there was probably this prevailing notion that like women's emotions were like a weakness or something. And I think I'd heard that logic. Um, I'm 43, so I'm a little older, older than you guys. So like I think I was in church circles that were more conservative. And I think there were often these generalizations about gender. And so I, I understood where that was coming from. But of course, I disagreed with the generalization. And yeah, yeah. And, and in fact, think being in tune with emotion is actually a great quality for a leader. Yeah. You know? So you didn't really like, uh, like rebel against it, but you were more like, I disagree with this, but I'm yeah, just going to kind of. I didn't like it, but then there actually was like a church split. And so this couple like went off and started another church and we eventually followed. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I was surrounded by women a few steps ahead of me who were like really wrestling with this question. And they were like, I was 18 and they were maybe like five to seven years older. And so they were all asking, they were all digging deep. And so I think I was really influenced by their struggle and their processing. And it kind of just put me on a journey, I think, early in life to be a pretty critical thinker about it all. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. That's good. So yeah, guys, what, what, where do you see this play out in the Bible? And like, what does Jesus say about this? Well, shall we start in Genesis? Yeah, let's start in Genesis. Heather, why don't you, why don't you kick us yeah, off? Yeah, so I got to think about this a little bit. And I, I've actually been reading Genesis, reading this uh, translation and commentary by John Golden Gate. It's called Genesis for Everyone. So it's not just for pastors, but it's really awesome. And wow. if you guys want to check it out, please cool. do. But I think, I think the reason we start in Genesis is because we see... God's intention in creation, mm -hmm. right? And that kind of sets the stage for how things should be, yeah. even if it's not how things are. And, you know, in Genesis 1, we see God say to male and female, he says, go multiply, fill the earth and hold sway or subdue it, right? Um, and both male and female are given these responsibilities equally, mm -hmm. right? They're equally commissioned and they're together and together, God says, they represent my image on the earth. And uh, Golden Gate makes this point that right away readers understand if females are not present in God's work in the world, the image of God is missing. Mm -hmm. And and the, the work of the church is also the work of God in the world. And so where women are absent, God's image is missing because they're not together. And so um, I love that he pointed that out. Um, but, but we see there in Genesis 1, there's like, there's no hierarchical relationship in humankind yet, right? No mm -hmm. master slave, no lead pastor, executive administrator, you know, like yeah. that's not there. And then you get to Genesis 2, which is like this more intimate retelling. Um, and there's a little bit more um, nuance and insight about how male and female come into being. And of course, you guys know the story. God says, you know, it's not good for this human being to be alone. And the Hebrew word is Adam. For, for Hebrew, uh, for human being. And of course, that's where we get the name Adam. But my uh, professor in college used to say, like, it was, it was genderless. It was a genderless word that can often be just translated person, right? And so um, Adam comes from Adama, which means creature of the mud or, or like <laughs> of the earth, right? Son yeah. of the earth. And so he would call him like mud guy, you know, in college. But yeah. so here we have like mud guy or a mud person, right? Um, creature of the earth. Yeah. And God says it's not good that he be alone or it be alone. And... Um, and so then he brings all the creatures to Adam to, 
to have Adam name them, right? And there's this implication that maybe as all the giraffes are lining up, you know, and, and the elephants or whatever, that maybe he's going to find a helper suitable for this task of subduing the earth, multiplying and filling it. But there is no helper suitable. And then another thing that's really good to know about this passage is that a lot of times um, we read this and we think, oh, like helper, like assistant, right? Like this um, female that's going to be created, she's going to be like his assistant. Mm -hmm. But the Hebrew word for helper is ezer, and that's what God is called. So God is our easer in battle. He's our easer when we're in trouble in the Old Testament. And so this is like not a, you know, like sword or like shield bearer or whatever. This is like, this is somebody who can come in with just as much like agency and um, qualification to do the work that God has yeah. has commissioned them to do, right? Yeah. And so, so here we have them both and we see this like equal commission um, they're ready to like have sex, make babies and, you know, fill the earth and subdue it. But then, you know, everything shifts in Genesis three. And that's when sin enters the picture. It's where sin enters the relationship. And it's only then that we actually see hierarchy start to exist between male and female. And it's a result of sin, you know, so we see the man blaming the woman for, you know, talking him into eating the fruit and, you know, she's blaming the snake, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a result of sin, God does announce some consequences. And the consequences are kind of like just this domino effect of this is what's going to happen. This is how your commission is actually going to be impacted by sin. So like when you are bearing children, it's going to be hard. When you are growing food and trying to support yourselves, the ground is not going to be easy for you to work. Like you're going to have to sweat and you're going to have to deal with this and it's going to be hard. And then the woman is also told as part of these consequences, she's told you'll have a desire for your husband and your husband will rule over you. Mm-hmm. And we don't know, like, is this desire supposed to be sexual? Is it like relational? Is it, you know, a desire for better partnership? Um, but we just know that whatever that desire is, it's gonna be frustrated because there's going to be inequality, mm-hmm. right? There's gonna be a hierarchy. And that's not part of the original plan. That was not part of the original design. And we know as Christians, and I'm almost done with Genesis, but we know that Jesus became sin. And scripture says sin was put to death on the cross. Mm -hmm. And because of that, the church should be the very first place where we start to see the reversal of sin made manifest, where we see male and female representing the image of God together uh, in all aspects of, of church life and leadership and um, in, in carrying the same responsibility for fulfilling the Great Commission. So um, that's what I take away from Genesis in regard to this topic. And I just, I think it's thrilling. I think it sets the stage and frames the whole conversation. Yeah. What's that phrase? Text without context is just a pretext to say whatever you want. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, that a that's, tongue just, twister. that's just, that's exactly what, what, well, what you just did right there, right? Is, is you gave context and then, you know, talking about the original Hebrew, the, 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 and that's so important when we dive into topics like this. Mm-hmm. We just can't read our NIV with Western eyes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That's, that, that's when we're just going to start creating our own 
theologies that are a little wonky. Yeah. Um, but I love how you mentioned a helper suitable because in the original Hebrew, it, it is translated to a strength equal to. Mm-hmm. And that phrase is, is used 20 times in the Old Testament and never used to describe someone who was simply designed to be a helper. Mm-hmm. Never, ever. And mm-hmm. so I think that's just important. Yeah. Um, that's that's great. Unpacking Genesis with this topic, um, you know, through the Old Testament, we know of these ferocious women um, who did awesome things um, for God's people. Deborah, uh, we have Ruth, Esther, Tamar, Rahab. Holda, uh, Holda is is awesome. Um, Holda is a is a prophetess, and I, and I should say this as a worship leader. Um, in Exodus, one third of Israel's worship team was a woman, hmm. with wow. Miriam, wow. Uh, Miriam, Aaron, and, and, and Moses, and so I think that's really cool too. So she had quite the mantle, mm-hmm. um, but then we have these women, and Holda is is a prophetess, and I think this is really important because you know when when we think of prophets and prophetesses in the Bible, we think of oh yeah, their job is just to like foretell the future, right? Yeah. Well, that's only like. Actually, 90% of what they do is, um, I had a pastor tell me that really prophets and prophetesses are covenant enforcers. So what they're doing is they keep on calling their people back to covenant. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's like predominantly what their job is. Yeah. And so she's, she, she's doing this. And so calling people back to covenant faithfulness sounds an awful like what preachers do on a Sunday morning. Yeah. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so we have to really think about that too. She's doing exactly what Pastor Rich does on Sunday morning. Um, and so, yeah, we have these awesome awesome women in the Old Testament. And then the Old Testament and the New Testament connect, you know. And um, and then we see, you know, God raising up women out of the brokenness of poverty and using them for a greater redemption plan. And then we look at Jesus' interaction with women. Um, and it was so radically countercultural. Uh, we see his re- reaction to the sinful woman, the Samaritan woman, Mary Magdalene. I mean, when we just think about the resurrection, like without the resurrection, I think we all would agree, like, we shouldn't be doing this right. Like, we wouldn't be doing this right now because everything is hinged on that. Yep. And um, the idea within that culture that, like, the prime witness to the resurrection of the Son of God would be a woman, like, in tears, like, you just can't make that up. And... um, yeah, that's like, I hear like some commentators say like that is such a strong indicator of the truthfulness of, I mean, and like one f- of the strong indicators of the truthfulness of the resurrection. Right. Because yeah. based in the context of that culture, I mean. That was you not would a not, good way to persuade your audience. You wouldn't right? write in and yeah. say yeah. Mary Magdalene was the first one to, mm-hmm. to see him. Right. Mm-hmm. And yet all four Gospels are very clear that the first people to be told um, that Jesus was alive again was it was women, mm-hmm. um, and it was like this cultural revelation because up until then, like Jesus chose twelve men, yeah. who all eventually let him down, right? And and yet um, he's like, no, this is a cultural revelation. Like this message is going to be two women that no one will believe, <laughs> but I'm going to tell them anyways. And even the disciples didn't believe. Yeah. The women that they were telling the truth, yeah. you know? And, mm-hmm. um, so it's just such a beautiful, beautiful idea there with, um, with, with the resurrection. And the New Testament, you know, which I want, I want to 
I want you to dive into that. I mean, it just holds many examples of godly women who lead, who preach, who, you know, do all these things that, that I see men doing. Um, and so let's dive into the New Testament because there are several um, passages in Scripture that are extracted um, and have been extracted for centuries, and doctrine has been made out of these scriptures, like in, we see in uh, Corinthians and Timothy. And so, what does Paul have to say about all this? Yeah, um, Paul just has made life so difficult for <laughs> so many women and men um, because he, we've struggled, right? We've struggled to understand some specific passages in his letters to specific churches. And I think it's just really important to keep in mind, like when we read epistles, we're reading letters, right? We're reading letters from a certain person to a certain group of people or a particular person. And we only see one side of the correspondence. So we don't know what have they been saying to each other? What are the problems going on in this church? Sometimes we can intuit that, right? And other times we're like, uh, we need a little help. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't know. And we may never know, right? Yeah. But I think it's important before we even look at and lift those, like, really tricky passages that we're like, what? Like, women can't even talk. They have to be quiet. That we look more broadly at how Paul endorses the ministry of women. Because right. if we do that, then we, we have to know well, he's not crazy. He's not a guy who's going to like contradict his doctrine to Timothy and, you know, to the Roman church and say completely different things. If he was, we wouldn't rely on him as a theologian, our greatest theologian, right? And so we have to, we have to know like there is purpose in, in context that we have to pay attention to. So like just as a whole, I think we see Paul as a man who celebrates the giftings of men and women. In however they will advance the gospel, in however they will grow the church. He honors women in leadership. He honors them um, as deacons, as apostles, as co-workers and co-laborers with, with him in Christ. Um, in Romans 16, for example, he names a lot of women. An explosive An chapter. explosive number of women. <laughs> I don't remember how many, but like for, with Phoebe, for instance, he calls her uh, diakonos, which means minister or servant of the church. Mm. And we might think, oh, great, like maybe she comes and makes coffee for the house church, right? But actually, diakonos is the word that he uses for Timothy, who is pastoring a church in Ephesus. And he never calls Timothy a pastor. He refers to him as uh, diakonos, you know. And so and then there are people like Priscilla and Aquila. And Priscilla is known as a teacher and a leader. And often her name is positioned first before her husband's, um, which suggests that she had a more prominent role in leadership. And then I I love Junia. Junia is mentioned in Romans 16. And Junia is, is a woman who's been called the lost apostle because I think it was around 300 AD, um, up until 300 AD, all the theologians knew Junia was a woman. And then all of a sudden they were like, let's just, let's add an S to her name. It couldn't have been a woman, right? Because we know women aren't apostles. So she was changed into a man. So she had like a gender identity shift, right? In our translations. And for hundreds of years, I believe, she was considered a man. And 
uh, it wasn't until, I don't know, I think it might have been the last hundred years where like people have started to realize like we have lost a female apostle here. But Paul calls her foremost among the apostles. So we know he's like praising these women. Some of them were leading house churches and hosting house churches. And some were on the mission field. Some were teaching other apostles and leaders. And so we just want to keep all that in mind, that he was celebrating their gifts. So one of the passages you threw my way to yes. talk about, Josh, was um, 1 Timothy chapter 2. And this is a, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, who was pastoring in Ephesus, um, which is a pretty crazy city, which mm-hmm. we'll get to in a minute. Um, the tricky uh, passage that people usually look at is verses 11 to 15. And I want to read that, but I'm also going to include um, verses 8 through 10 before that because it gives us just a better picture of what's happening. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. That's one of those passages where you almost have whiplash. Like if, as you've been like reading through the New Testament, and you're like, what? So first of all, we just want to notice there's a litany of problems here in Ephesus at the church. We have apparently men who have a hard time like praising and praying to God without fighting and, and being angry and arguing about stuff. And then... We have women who are like just flaunting all of their jewelry and clearly putting like such an investment in their appearance that it doesn't really leave a lot uh, of room in their lives for good deeds, you know, which is a problem. Like that's probably like where investment in your appearance tips the scale on good deeds and, you know, um, a lifestyle in submission to Christ. Like these women, that's who they were. Um, And then he gets into this place of like, women should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Um, Some commentators say, Paul is saying, I'm not permitting a woman to do this. And it could be, I'm not permitting a woman to do this now in your church. So what do I want to say about this? He says they need to learn. And I think that's the thing that's really key here. I think what the text is suggesting is that these women are loud. They have not learned doctrine or theology that they need to learn. They need to be quiet. They need to take a few classes before they start teaching other people. And Paul says elsewhere in this letter that some of the women are following Satan and they've turned to the teachings of Satan and they're leading other women in this as well. So this is pretty serious. There are some doctrinal issues that they have. And it sounds like maybe they've been trying to assert their doctrinal authority over the men without actually knowing what they were talking about. So Marge Mosco on her blog, she's a, a theologian and commentator. She just says, these women need to chill, right? They need to chill. <laughs> the Greek implies they're causing a disturbance. Um, and then Paul says, you know, in verses 13 to 14, 
he says uh, the stuff about, you know, Adam and Eve and how Adam wasn't the one deceived. And, you know, we don't know for sure why Paul feels like he needs to summarize the obvious, right? Like, why are you telling us this, Paul? But I promise you, like, I feel pretty sure he's telling them what seems obvious to us because it's not obvious to them, right? There is some kind of doctrinal thing. And maybe the bad teaching that was being peddled by this by these women were that men were inferior. Maybe that's what it was. Maybe they were teaching an inaccurate account of creation and their theology was just all twisted up and they were using it to lord it over men. And that wouldn't be surprising because of the city they're in. So Ephesus is like the center of Artemis worship, mm-hmm. right? So it is like the place where the goddess is worshiped and you know, they were more into Artemis than Iowa Cityans are into the Hawkeyes, right? So Artemis was the center of life. And um, the cult worship emphasized her as like the goddess who could give life and take life away. And so it just wouldn't be a stretch to think that there was some kind of like hierarchical gender stuff that got imported from the cult of Artemis into the early church in Ephesus. And that it had this effect of these new converts who thought they knew, you know, what their faith in Jesus was all about, it could have had the effect that they were trying to assert authority over these men. Now, we don't, I can't say I know this for sure, right? None of us can say we know this for sure, but these are plausible explanations, right? When you look Sorry. at the the culture and the text and, and then in verse 15, you get this whole commentary about women will still be saved through childbearing if they continue in holiness, faith and propriety. And, you know, you know, on a surface level reading, if you just lift that, you think like people think like, oh, like, so women need to have children and that's how they're saved, right? Well, what happens if you're not married? What happens if you're infertile, right? Like none of that makes sense. We know that's like antithetical to the gospel message. It's not about procreation, right? And so we can also interpret this in light of the cultural context, the, the Artemis cult, right? Um, maybe there are women who felt like they needed to import some of their Artemis worship uh, into their new faith, like Artemis as the protector of their bodies, the protector of their them as they go through labor and pregnancy. And maybe Paul is just saying, you don't need help from any other God. You're saved through childbearing. Like, you don't need to worry about that. Uh, just continue in your learning. Continue to be holy. Um, another possibility is that their teaching was just about renouncing sex. Like, we shouldn't have sex, you know, we have to be holy, even if they were married. And Paul is saying, like, you could still have children and be saved, and you're fine, you know. So all of that would really make sense for these women who were new converts, who didn't know anything about Jewish uh, scripture. And also the Artemis cult myth was that women were created first. And oh, thank you. Yeah. Yes. And that, well, I mean, there you go. And so there was a lot of hostility when they leaned into these types of teachings. Mm-hmm. And so that's why Paul is saying he just wasn't having it. Right. Yeah. But what I think is cool is be, you, and you mentioned this already, like he was saying he wasn't having it for, for men either. Cause just in a couple of verses earlier, he was saying, you know, lift up holy hands. Don't be angry guys when you're praying. So it's like he was, he was doing <laughs> yeah. it to men and then. Now, so he's like this equal opportunity offender, right? Like yeah. he's not, he's, he's not playing favorites. Right. Um, he's still telling the men to shut up yeah. in a way, you know, like stop talking in this way. Absolutely. But, but you're right. What I see here is Paul commanding 
women, if he is commanding women to do anything, it's it's to learn. It's it's this idea before you teach, mm-hmm. like be a like um, grab a hold of the posture of a student. Yeah. If you're going to teach at a larger level, um, like. And which is a super exciting announcement when you think about it to women, like because back in the culture, they wouldn't learn. They would have to hear from their husbands or whatever. So Mm -hmm. so what Paul is actually doing is empowering women. He's not telling them to to be silenced here. And so uh, so I think we would we we would agree that um, Paul does not prohibit women from teaching. um, I mean, because they're already prophesying and. Um, and not being silent, and Paul is saying, okay, those who, what I think he's saying is those who don't have good behavior and spreading false teaching, they need to learn before you teach. Because the overarching, like, like the context of First Timothy is false teaching. Mm-hmm. Like, Paul's, Paul's being like, bro, be aware of false yeah. teachers. Yeah. And so when we have that as our lens, it just starts to make sense that he's not prohibiting women from teaching, but he is talking about behavior, right? Mm-hmm. He's, he's addressing both men and women um, and telling them to not spread false teaching. And you need to learn, like grab a hold of the posture of a student, learn before you teach. So yeah. we would agree that mm-hmm. yeah, about that, right? Okay, yeah. cool. So First Timothy 3 mm-hmm. is another passage of scripture on the office of eldership. So what, how would you define, how would we define an elder here? It's such a good question because, I mean, so many churches have offices of elder, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's what the biblical, it fits the biblical model. Um, It does seem clear that elders have sort of like a a greater responsibility than deacons, um, that they're overseers, right? Mm -hmm. They're like watching to make sure things are going well in the church. So the role of an elder... I have written down here. So like, it's basically like this idea of teaching and leadership over the large umbrella of the church. So it's, it's, it's an important mm-hmm. position in the church. Mm-hmm. So when we reach first Timothy chapter three, um, when we read it in the English, it seems like he's just talking about men. He's just addressing men. Yet when you, again, like when we read beneath like the skin and, w- and when we get into the original language, it's a very different feel. Um, in case you didn't know, there were there were no chapter breaks and no headers in the original manuscript, and so um, in two fifteen, uh, what what you were talking about, he you know he's talking about women, and then it just goes literally right into three one, and he, and he says if anybody aspires to be an overseer, so he was just saying women, talking about women, mm-hmm. and it just goes right into if anybody yeah. aspires to be an overseer. So this is still in the context mm-hmm. of women. Mm-hmm. And then he uses the qualifications of an elder, um, and you know, in the in the Greco-Roman world, when you're addressing a group of people, you're addressing it in the masculine. It's, it's like how, and I still find myself doing this all the mm-hmm. time. Like when I'm addressing a group, I'll be like, "Hey guys," yet there's clearly a yeah. lot of women, yeah, right. Yep. And so that's exactly. that's kind of what, what what Paul's doing here. Um, and so just because it's in the Mac. And the masculine doesn't mean like it has to be a man because when you read things well, like wisdom in the Bible, like wisdom is in the feminine, but does that mean that men can't be wise, you know? And so we have, to, and like righteousness um, even has that, uh, is, is in the feminine also. And so can men not be righteous? And so <clears throat> he gives 15 qualifications for men um, for, 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 for an overseer. 
addressing men, and yet 15 other parts in the Bible, specifically in Timothy and Titus, he is talking directly to women and saying, I need you to do these exact things also, these these 15 different things. Um, and I just want to go through them really quick. Paul gives 15 qualifications of an elder, and every single one in First Timothy and Titus, he says those are capable of a woman. So he says this, um, an, an overseer must be above reproach, but in f- chapter 5 or 7, he says a woman must be above reproach. Um, he says uh, an, an, el- uh, an elder must be temperate. In chapter 311, he says a woman must be temperate. Um, an elder must have self-control. In chapter 2, verse 9, um, which you already talked about, and 15, he says a woman must have self-control. An elder must be respectable. He says in chapter 2, 9, a woman must be respectable. An elder must be hospitable. Chapter 5, verse 10, a woman must be hospitable. An elder must be able to teach. Well, in Titus chapter 2, verse 3, he says, women be teachers of what is good. An elder must not be drunkards. He said, when, when, and women must not be drunkards in chapter 3, verse 3. Mm-hmm. Elders must not be lovers of money. Chapter 2, verse 9, women must not be lovers of money. Elders must be good managers of, of their household. In chapter 3, verse 4, he says women, he actually says this, women are going to rule their households, which is awesome. Um, an elder must show dignity in keeping children under control. Um, he says women are to do the same thing in chapter 3, verse 11 of First Timothy. Uh, chapter 3, verse 6, elders must not be new converts. Um, and this is interesting. In chapter 5, verse 10, he says um, women be humble and not in condemnation, which is, which is very similar when you, when, when you look at those, at, at those two themes. And then he says, elders must have good testimony from outsiders. First Timothy chapter five or seven, he says, women are to have a good testimony from outsiders. So every time we see Paul list, list qualifications of leadership with this office of elder, the expectation for what I see is clearly to both men and women. Um, these, specific, these specific pronouns are not in the Greek. And man, if, he, if, if Paul wanted to exclude women I think he did a really bad job at doing it when yeah. I when I look at the original manuscript, you know, because so what I see yeah. is scripture not banning women from holding that office. That's good. You do a lot of like fancy connections there. That yeah. was pretty awesome. Um, yeah, it it got me thinking too. Like just because scripture is silent on something mm. doesn't mean that it's against that thing, right? Yeah. Um, so we have to be careful and just assuming that. Um, so I love what you said, Josh, because, um, Paul's concern in this letter is not necessary. It's not to tell the church, here's what men can do. And here's what women can do. It's here are what the qualities should be of a leader in the church. Right. right? And why is he doing this? So I, there's this vineyard pastor named Rich Nathan who like for the vineyard movement, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, he wrote a position paper on women in ministry. And one of his key points was Paul is so concerned about the testimony of the gospel that so much of what he directs men and women to do is for the sake of outsiders, not being so offended that then they're like, whoa, those Christians are nuts, right? Mm -hmm. And so in Timothy and Titus alone, uh, he... um, reveals this concern that Christians represent like the best face possible to Greco-Roman society and like be willing to adjust their behavior as long as it doesn't compromise the the core tenets of the faith. So he quotes Paul in those two books just saying in those two sets of letters, 
so as to give the opponent no occasion for slander. This is why you should do this. In order that God's name and the teaching might not be slandered. In order that the word of God might not be slandered. In order that the opponent might be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. In order that they might adorn the teaching of our Savior God in everything. So like the point is the gospel spread, right? Mm. So we've got to have these leaders who are good teachers, who are above reproach, so that the gospel can spread that's and right. it won't be scorned. Yeah, I love that. And I mean, I just feel like that's a great, just even as you were just talking through that great principle when you're approaching questions of the Bible is like, what's the main point mm-hmm. behind this? Like, yeah. was the main point of Paul to ban women from teaching? And I think as you guys have laid out is like, that wasn't the main point of yeah. the letter of Timothy. Yeah. And so like... Um, when we have questions uh, that arise through faith and uh, as we look through that is we have to, I think, apply good hermeneutics, which is just the the background, understanding the context and the people that he's writing to. And yeah. um, that tends to answer a lot of the, the what ifs I, I have found. And... Um, it just takes a little bit of extra digging. Now, maybe if we should define like the two opposing thoughts here, egalitarian and complementarian, which mm-hmm. by the way, many churches are egalitarian and the same amount of churches, if not more, maybe would be complementarian yeah. in your At experience. Least in like middle-class America, you evangelical yeah, middle-class even, America. Yeah. yeah. So, so Pentecostal church is less though, I think egalitarian. Yeah. Less, less, Complimentarian. complimentarian. Yeah. Really? Gotcha. Yeah, because of Joel too, right? And 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 Acts too, right? Like where Peter is quoting Joel, like I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh, right? Mm-hmm. And that includes women. And so Pentecostals are like, oh, the Holy Spirit can fall on us, so we can have spirit empowered ministry. So I think that's how it happens for the AG is they look at that and they go, oh, it's because of of Joel, you yeah. know, uh, and Peter. Yeah. So complementarian, um, uh, I would define it as, you know, men and women are equal in the eyes of God, but complementarians would say that women function differently. Um, They wouldn't, they wouldn't hold offices like, you know, preaching to men, senior, senior leader, elder, kind of what we talked about in their local church, but they would um, function in roles that are complementary to those roles that men would Feel, yeah. Right. Yeah, and I think it's such a. There are so many other ideas attached to complementarianism mm-hmm. as they get practically worked out in marriages and churches. So, That's like, right. there are so many other ways that people may enhance that definition. Like, the woman's going to stay at home and not have a job, maybe because then you start looking at complementarianism in marriage versus like, mm-hmm. what are relationships between men and women in the church look like, right? So there's like a whole body of yeah. ways that this can play out. And then egalitarianism, I don't know if you have a definition you want to share. I mean, I just I wrote, I just wrote it. down, it's just like, it's this idea that there are no biblical gender-based restrictions in ministry in the church. Yeah, and I... I think I would add to it or maybe nuance it by saying um, we're only limited by the gifts the Holy Spirit does or doesn't give us, mm-hmm. right? And and that, like, I shouldn't be, you know, the media person, not because I'm a woman, but because that's not my gifting or skill set, right? Yeah. Um, but that we should really only be limited by 
what the Holy Spirit That's really good. gives to us. And of course, all the other things Paul talks about. I also shouldn't be a drunkard and I should be, <laughs> you know, have my home in order, all that stuff. That's really good. That and is. so, yeah, our churches are egalitarian. In fact, you can go to the Assemblies of God website and there's a there's a clear statement. It was actually really awesome to read. Um, mm. Very, very detailed, um, talking a lot about this and, and why why we believe what we believe in as far as being egalitarian and, and the role of women in the church. And so you can go to the assembly's website too. So I think that's a good segue too, of just like, I mean, that's a great resource. Heather, have you found any other resources that like for someone who's wanting to dive deeper and like, I mean, we're, we're kind of talking through it now and yeah. all that, but like yeah. for that person who is wanting to go deeper. My problem is I just, I've read so many books, so it's hard to just mm. do one, but Remember. I, I did read a book by Joe Saxton, uh, who I don't like the title. It's called, I think it's called The Dream of You or Enchanted or something like that. But the the first section of the book is like this amazing uh, teaching and theological explanation on the reason why women should be empowered in the church to use the giftings God has given them. And I thought, you know, for for anybody who who's not saying, hey, I'm a, you know, I'm a leader in the church or like I know a ton about theology, that would be super accessible. I would just look up her her books. It's Joe Saxton. We'll put and, a link in the description. Yeah, I'll, I'll find out the title Perfect. of the book. Yeah. Josh, have, have you found any really helpful resources for you as you... What was that podcast called? The Impossible Podcast? Oh, yeah. That was a really good um, podcast talking about hard questions. And the guys did a really good job at really breaking this idea down and talking about both, uh, about both, um, both ends of the spectrum here. So um, I'm more of a podcast guy and less of a reader. Um, so, yeah. But there's a lot of podcast resources out there on this particular topic because it is – it really is a hot button issue that yeah. people are asking about. Like, man, you know. So, yeah. Yeah. As another another reference, a resource, Joy Qualls is an AG minister, and she wrote a book called "God Forgive Us for Being Women." And she's a she's a communications like rhetoric specialist, but wow. also an AG minister. So she um, looked at the whole history of the Assemblies of God and like how um, women have functioned in ministry and how our speech about women in ministry affected the attitudes of the AG mm. and how that's impacted uh, women as a whole in the movement. And interestingly, and this is a side note, um, we have about 27% of our ministers who are women in the AG. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people are saying like, well, that's great. You know, that seems closer to 50 than to zero, right? <laughs> but she made the point last week when I was listening to her talk, she said, Actually, in like the 20s, we were at 25%. Wow. And then in the 30s, there was this time period from like 31 to 35 where the AG started wondering like, do we really feel good about women having mm. credentials? Mm. And so there was like a pause where they didn't renew any women's credentials for about five years except missionaries because they really needed an excuse to be out on the field, wow. right? Like and accepted by the government and have some authority mm. wherever they were. And so she says there just been like, there have, there have been some bumps in the road. And, and I think she traces some of that in her book, God Forgive Us for Being Women, which I haven't read. I've just heard her talk about, and it's powerful. So even wow. still, the, the, the denomination who advocates for it 
can still do better is what it can still do better and and i think theologically we're on point but it's in practice where like we haven't seen the working out of Mm. that uh sin put to death on the cross right and division between men and women uh being abolished we know that's the work that jesus did and the church should be the first place where we start to see that reversed but we just have a long way to go. And we can tell that by looking at all the church websites, right? Yeah. We and can. the percentage of women lead pastors right. in the church is, f- right. I assume, is it 5%? In the AG, it's 5% wow. of our churches are led by women. Yeah. 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 So, so it's sometimes low. you got to look in the it's mirror. Yeah. There's a lot of, yeah, there are a lot of, a lot of, that's a whole other conversation yeah. about like why that is. Yeah. But like mm-hmm. what are some of those areas? What would that help you, with reform? Yeah. Yeah. yeah with reform. What would help a lot of things. And people have different ideas about reform. So... I've listened to two superintendents talk about this recently, and you can make an argument for some type of affirmative action in bylaws in networks where, like, we're always going to have a female presbyter. It doesn't matter. Like, we're always going to have a female on our governing board. And um, what some people find is that after about 10 years of normalizing that, women start to Mm. get elected to those positions. Because I think um, a friend of mine who's uh, in leadership, and I don't know if she'd want me to mention her name, but she has said the church is just not attuned to female leadership. So like when people are thinking about finding a pastor or going to a church, they imagine a man, Mm -hmm. right? And so they're just not attuned to a woman and what it might be like to have a woman as your pastor. And so... There's, it's just a foreign experience for a lot of people. I am a foreign experience for a lot of people. And so um, they're not attuned to it. And so if you can put a woman there on purpose for a while, they start to become attuned to it. So that's one strategy. Mm-hmm. Another strategy is for our male leaders to just become really, really intentional about who they platform and who they mentor. Yeah. Um, you know, at network events, bringing women up on the stage at local churches, making sure that you're having women preaching regularly, that they're they're doing the things that men are doing and it's visible and, and it becomes, it starts to feel normal. Yeah. Um, another thing uh, is that there's often a gap in experiences um, for men in ministry and women in ministry. And that, this is a whole other topic, but that stems from the Billy Graham rule. And I don't know if you guys have heard of the yeah. Billy Graham rule. Or he said, maybe our our viewers haven't, but like Mm -hmm. he said he wasn't ever going to have a meal or get in an elevator with a woman. Well, if you're trying to disciple women who are your future pastors, but you can't have a meal with her, and the only kind of conversation you can have is one in the open where everyone can hear, it's going to be hard to mentor them in like some of the more nuanced, complicated, and let's be honest, private things that happen in ministry, right? Where you're talking about people's lives or like confidential information and so i think like figuring out how to overcome that barrier in whatever ways makes sense for those leaders um, to be able to mentor um, women who are in a pipeline of leadership and um, i think uh, because men are often like we gravitate right you gravitate toward your male friendships probably yeah and i gravitate toward female friendships as my close relationships well one thing i notice is like a lot of ministry decisions can happen like for example on the golf course or at the movies or you know wherever it is that men are hanging out Mm -hmm. where women often aren't invited because it's part friendship right and so when you're thinking about mentoring women and bringing women into those places of, of influence and leadership, 
you really have to be intentional and like you really have to like actually inconvenience yourself in order to um, make those opportunities um, give them an opportunity to I love what I see at Life Church now of like there are women doing baptisms and baby dedications and probably communion. I don't know if I've seen that yet, but but I love that because that's that's really how it should be and I'm I'm glad to see that. Yeah. Awesome. I, I feel like that was just like a short little master class of just oh. like <laughs> practical steps and yeah. I mean not even just for the church, but even for yeah. like businesses yeah. and like people looking to very enlightening, uh, yeah. yeah. To it's, include women more and, yeah. yeah, globally what things. you just yeah. what you did was just just practically uh unpacked, okay, how can we globally like start to change the tra- trajectory yeah. of this. And, mm-hmm. and the hard part is, like, not every male leader is ready for that or even right. on board, even if they are egalitarian. Mm-hmm. Right. They just may not know. And they have a million right. other things they're worried about and stressed about in ministry, right? right? Yeah. And the big word you said was intentionality. Yeah, and inconvenience, right? Yep. It's not convenient. Getting out of the comfort zone of yeah. where, where, like you said, like, naturally I would gravitate towards like male relationship in that and realizing yeah. that like, oh, that's my natural bent, yeah. but I need to take a step towards an unnatural bent. That, yeah. Not that it's yeah unnatural, but just uncomfortable because I haven't been yeah. that way before. Yep. Yeah. Or even to challenge yourself, like you really have to be so self-aware, like who am I considering for this position or for this volunteer position? Like is there a woman in the congregation who would be good at this? Mm-hmm. But maybe I just don't know her because I, I, she's not in my network, you know? And I've I've sat at tables where, like, people are considered for volunteer roles or paid roles, and um, I'll notice that, like, if a woman's not in a network with the men making a decision, like, there isn't, there just isn't much consideration given because they don't know her well enough to know that yeah. this is a person who would be qualified. And so... It just takes so much inconvenience and intentionality and like asking around and like who would be good at this and and then vetting and all that stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. Heather, thank you for just uh, uh, just being who you are. And, you know, I have I have several nieces and I'm just like, I want them to someday watch Heather talk about this. <laughs> you know, <laughs> thank you. And so um, just you're a role model um, for, I think, many young women who aspire to like maybe teach God's word someday yeah and they can look at they can look at you and be like all right that's one of my prayers actually like as I was preparing for this like Lord may there be someone watching who is something is sparked in them where they're like I think I might be pastoral Mm -hmm. like those are the words I said to Rich in 2007 Mm -hmm. I was like and I sat on them for a year because I was so intimidated but I said I think I'm pastoral like, what does this mean, you know? And then he was able to sort of help me move along in the steps. But, wow. um, yeah, yeah, I'm hoping this conversation sparks that in Same. some people. Yeah. Awesome. This is, like, one of my favorite topics. So yeah, <laughs> thanks I, for I asking. I can definitely. <laughs> well, this has been a pleasure. Yeah, it's been Thank so you for great. having me. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of Asking for a Friend. We had such a great time with Heather Weber and just discussing this question of what is the role of women in the church. We hope that uh, this is just a starting point for you as you dive into these questions. And we have resources down in the links below uh, to the books and the resources that they mentioned during the podcast. If you have any other questions that pop up from this episode, feel free to ask one of our pastors here at Life Church. 
You can find our information on our website. And if you have other questions that you'd like to see us answered on this podcast, you actually can go to www.lifechurchnow.org forward slash asking for a friend. There you'll be able to submit your question and maybe we'll be able to discuss it here. So thanks again for tuning in and we hope to see you next time. See ya.